0: Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce our next guest is my producer, Sari Soffer.
1: Hi. So this guest is a very exciting one. It is Glennon Doyle. She's an author most known for her recent book, Untamed. I'm actually late to the game. I just read it, but it is super empowering. It's about how, especially as women, the world is trying to cage us and fit us into certain boxes, but we need to listen to that voice inside us and set ourselves free, hence the
0: name Untamed. This is uh, very much the zeitgeist for, I think, women right now, and Glennon's on the forefront of that. The book that I wrote, She proclaims, which is a declaration of independence for a man's world, is like the same sort of dawning,
1: Tell us the story because I, uh, you, you guys actually started talking when she released her book or was, was it when you released, uh, she proclaimed, that you began talking uh, about how to launch a book in a pandemic?
0: I met her digitally. I've never met her in person because <laughs> she posted something nice about Dear Madam President, which I had written in 2018. And My sister's like, oh, my God, and Doyle said something nice about your book. So we became Twitter and email and text friends after that, and I Got her advice after she launched Untamed because she proclaimed it was coming out also in the middle of the pandemic, and she was super generous with her time and ideas.
1: Doesn't it feel like so long ago when you had that conversation oh with her? Oh my god! Yeah, it's just it's
0: tried to say, but it feels like a different lifetime. I know. Different lifetime.
1: I feel like I have just been so blah lately. Like it's harder to work. It's harder to find things that help me recharge. And it's actually interesting. I was reading a study from Wharton that was done last year about productivity during the pandemic. And it said that productivity has either stayed stable or gone up at most workplaces because people are able to like hunker down without distraction. But what's been suffering is innovation because it's harder to collaborate and share ideas and be creative when we're all isolated.
0: So interesting.
1: Yeah, it's super interesting. I just feel like that's like what's missing from our lives right now is that color and excitement. And since Glennon's a writer
0: and a creative person, I wanted to ask her about how she stays inspired and gets work done. And what she, but what I found so liberating was that she recently tweeted about how she quits each day. Mm-hmm. Someone asked her, How do you not quit? And she's like, Oh no, I quit. I quit every <laughs> single day. And I definitely quit the afternoon that I read that. But I look forward to talking to her with tips about how we let this go.
1: On that note, should we quit this little discussion? <laughs> sure, <laughs> let's do that. Get on to Glennon.
2: Okay. We're recording. Okay, hey, everybody. My technical oh. support wife. Thank you. All right, Glennon. Yes. We are
0: a year into this pandemic and I am so fucking exhausted. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah. Exhausted is a nice word for what we all are. I have to thank
0: you. The other day, I saw you posted on Instagram that someone had asked you, "How do you not quit? How do you keep going? How do you quit?" And you were you said like, "You quit all the time, every day, every damn day." Tell me about that. Tell me about quitting, particularly now when I feel like so many women are like, "I just, how am I going to hold on?" It's like maybe you don't. Maybe, maybe you, don't you don't hold on, maybe no. you let go.
2: I can't imagine actually when I try to think about the idea of not quitting. Like how much that makes me panic and want to cry. Like I I live yeah. to quit. I quit every single day. I wake up in the morning and I care the most amount. I care so much in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. About the world, about, you know, my people, about other people. And that might just be the coffee. Honestly, when I think about it, it might it, hope caring and coffee might actually just be the same thing. Because I do notice that over time, as the day goes on, I just start caring a little bit less about everything. Right. <laughs> it's kind of different every day, but, but it's certainly by five at the latest, I just quit everything. I just shut down the part mm-hmm. of myself that tries. That tries or has to give or Right, right. And I mean, I'm it. a wife and a mom, so I have to do some things, but my kids are older and I have a wife instead mm-hmm. of a husband. So I, I have to do less things because you know, every woman just really needs a wife is what needs to happen. My husband's pretty good at being a wife, but is he tech support well, he's not good at. That was yeah. Yeah, I do have a technical support wife, I call her. But I, I actually, I mean, we joke about it, but it is true. I mean, when people say, How do you not quit with all the world's needs and, you know, the news every day? I, th- I think, Oh, I do quit. I quit every day. I love quitting. Quitting is the most important part of my day. And the fact that I quit every day makes me able to start over every morning.
0: I found it so liberating. It was just, I mean, it was just the other day, and I'm in DC right now. I'm here shooting for the circus the show I do on Showtime about politics. Mm-hmm. And I came back to my room at like, when it was like five 30, maybe, and I was done shooting for the day. And I was like, mm-hmm. I had the whole evening free. I should write, I should do this. And then I saw your post and I was like, no, I'm going to quit. Mm-hmm. And I watched the entire season of never have I ever yes. <laughs> on Netflix that night. And it just felt, you know, just to have the permission to, to do that, to quit. Mm -hmm. And like, and I do realize how much I fear quitting, right? You fear like, how am I going to hold on and not let go? And then if you're like, Oh wait, I can let go and have the assurance that tomorrow I will be able to get back up and care and do again.
2: Yeah. I think as you're saying, I think it's one of the most important parts of my life. It's like, when you are someone who could convince herself that she is only worth her weight on this earth if she's constantly producing as a writer as an artist as an activist like i could convince myself that every hour that i'm not producing is an hour that i'm wasting and that yes is just the opposite of mental health to me right like i just have to believe that in the creation process, rest and nothingness, it's not a break from the creative process. It's an integral part of it. I have learned, I have my writing time first thing in the morning. So like book writing time, like deep mm-hmm. creative writing time when I'm in, I actually am in my closet. So what time in the morning is that? Like, it depends right now. You, wait, I'm, you do it in your closet? I can only write in my closet. How weird is that? I started writing in my closet because I had no other space. Because I lived at a very tiny house where my third child was actually sleeping in the bathroom because I, – so I, I literally had nowhere else to go except my closet. And so years later, when Abby and I got married, we moved into a new house and I have my own office. I'm in my office right now. And I was so excited. Like, oh, I am such a grown up. I have like bookshelves. I have a, a table. Yeah. And so I'd come in here. I started to come in here in the morning. And I'm telling you what, I could not do it. I could not write at this desk. I can do calls. I can do podcasts. I could write a magazine article. Mm -hmm. But like that deep, raw, creative voice that has to go into book Mm -hmm. writing does not show up here. So there's a teeny little closet off my office. And so one day I thought, okay, what if I take – I took a little side, a a circular side table from the couch and put Mm -hmm. my computer on it with one little chair and started writing in there and that voice came back. So I only write in the closet now, which is so ironic. I mean, the jokes with my family about coming out of the closet and into the closet and (laughs) out of the closet. Yes, 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 yes.
0: So you go in there in the morning and do Mm -hmm. your best writing. But is that like, do you have to have the night before, after you quit (laughs) to be replenished?
2: Yeah. I mean, what I find is that I have that time, right? And then I will come out, do the kids mornings, um, get them off to school, start kind of the worky work day, which is not. The art, Mm -hmm. really, it's just kind of the business of things. And then when I shut all of that down and go do what I ever Mm -hmm. need to do, like in terms of taking a walk or just whatever it is, human things, that's when my ideas come to me, right? Like I remember reading about one creative person. I don't know who it was. It was somebody who would create in the morning and then always go to a movie in the afternoon because they knew that once they turned in that subconscious, your subconscious works creatively right, when you're turned off. And so often when I'm on a walk, walking for me, I have to make myself walk without any input. So no earphones, no whatever. That's hard. But that's when I get my best ideas that feed my work is the downtime.
0: Right. But what I've learned to trust, which I think a lot of women have a hard time letting go of, you said like, if I'm not producing every minute, I'm wasting time. And I'm also not living up to what's expected of me, but to know that you're going to be better if you quit. Mm -hmm. And that's what I feel like is so important about your book, Untamed. It's not just the empowering advice. You know, what I hadn't appreciated until I read your book is the things that we have the permission to let go of.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, that you don't have to do everything. It's that constant Pressure that we've been put on ourselves to always be doing something that I actually think in the end is holding us back mm-hmm. from being as creative and not productive, but doing our best work or engaging in the world the best way we can, or just, you know, being the best, truest version of ourselves.
2: Yeah. Or just being happy and healthy, you know, like, <laughs> isn't that the ultimate revenge and resistance? Right. Like, yes. I mean, at the end of the day, I just want to be <laughs> full of life and health and peace. And and as a right, woman, it's, right, I want right. to be a taker. I want to be a taker. I don't want to be just a giver. I want to be a sober nice. inner of all of the goodness that is down yeah. here. I don't wa- want to measure my worth or my success based on how much I disappeared or like ran myself into the ground, right? So, Right. yeah, I mean, I think I've had the benefit of being someone who has had a mental health crisis. I feel bad for everyone. Who has never had a mental health crisis? Like, I feel bad for people who are not addicts, who are not depressed or anxious because these people don't have the rock bottom that teaches you how to take care of yourself, right? You know, I have struggled with addiction and depression my whole life. And so I have learned that there is only one thing at the end of the day. Like, every day I don't wake up and think, oh my God, like, how can I be my best self? Like, I don't. Every day I ask myself one question, which is like, what do I have to do today to not completely lose my shit? As a mother, as a wife, as an artist, as a, like what do I have to do to fiercely take care of myself so I don't lose my shit because what everyone in my life needs for me to do is not lose my shit. Because if I don't, right. I'm good. Right. Right. Like I, I I I'm good enough. I'm a good enough wife, I'm a good enough mom, right. I'm a good enough writer. I'm like all I have to do is not sink the ship, right? So I know the things that keep me from sabotaging myself. Sleep, it's rest, it's food, it's joy, it's
0: turning off. I haven't had addiction problems, but I have had clinical depression and struggle with that. And I do think, you know, that kind of experience, experiencing loss does sort of free from this because you know that, you know, I think some people expect that all happiness in life is going to be found in the next email that they respond to, right? Mm -hmm. If they just respond to that next thing they're going to be fulfilled or they're going to find validation in it. And when you go through a process where you hit rock bottom, you know that that's not actually what life, so it is sort of freeing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you wake up every morning and, and you're like, what do I have to do to just get through this? What do you do if you do feel yourself slipping though?
2: Yeah. I mean, I'm a dramatic thinker. Okay. So Okay. I don't slightly slip. Okay. That's not a problem that Uh I have. I go from things are fine to, oh, I forgot. I hate everything. I hate my life. I hate Mm -hmm. my kids. I hate my family. I hate my dogs. I hate my religion. I hate my job. I hate like I need a new everything. I need to start over. I go straight to dramatic thinking. Okay. So it's like true panic, then it seems like you're throwing everything out. Or just like total negativity, right? Just like, Mm -hmm. ugh. Uh And what I have found is that all of my big thinking can usually like when i think i need a new job i need a new life i need a new house i need a new dog i need a new religion what i really usually need is like a glass of water <laughs> right like glennon you're dehydrated <laughs> right it's it's like always and it's annoying cuz i like dramatic things and gesture i will fix my yeah. life if i move i will fix my life if i whatever yeah something
0: outside of yourself
2: exactly but there's this Terrible problem about being human, which is like wherever you go, there you are. Yep. This is the one thing that I would change about the human experience (laughs) if I were to create it, but whatever, this is what it is. So, what I know is that wherever I go, there I am. So, no matter what sweeping, dramatic changes I make, I will still be me. Mm -hmm. And so, I'm stuck with myself. Okay. No matter how many New York Times bestsellers you write, no matter how many weeks you're on the bestseller list. Like, no matter oh. how much success you have. Right. And is that the terrifying thing about getting the things that you thought would fix your life? Yes. Oh my God. I mean, at least when you don't have them, you can still pretend that that's the thing that will make you finally relax and have peace and have joy. Right. And then you get them and you're like, oh fuck. What now? I mean, honestly, even, like, finding Abby and, like, falling so deeply in love for the first time and having this, like, amazing love story, you know, I was convinced that, like, that would certainly fix me. (laughs) Right. Right. Like, of all the things. And so for that, you know, Abby and I laugh all the time about that initial sparkly part of love slowly fading and realizing, oh, here I am again. (laughs) it's still me (laughs) right (laughs) turns out Abby married me (laughs) yeah I mean I think that's one of the cool things about falling in love right it's like you lose yourself people talk about losing yourself it's a joy because you're you're not dealing with yourself for a while you're just lost in this la-la land and then it's like almost like addiction it's so interesting
0: it transports you someplace else absolutely and you think that your life's always going to be different and then you realize you're still you.
2: Here I am again here. I yeah. am. But anyway, the point is, it's the little things.
0: It's something small. It's not a big dramatic change in your life. That's going to like get you back in your better place in your head.
2: No. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, I've started to see those dramatic things I do as almost like similar to addictive behavior. It's like mm-hmm. ways to abandon yourself, like ways to not deal with your life. Like we call it dealing with our life, but actually they're like ways to keep yourself busy or distracted so you're not dealing with your life. It's like I have like reset buttons and and easy buttons. And the easy buttons are things that I know in my personality are things that help me abandon myself. Mm -hmm. These are the things like overeating, binging, purging, the drinking, the online shopping for me. Forget it. Like I can deaden. I can go dead inside. And listen, I don't even have to buy anything. Just put it in my cart. Just put it yeah, in the cart. really?
0: Put, oh, yeah, it's, wow. it's
2: just a numbing. I don't know. It's so weird. I used to buy a bunch of stuff and then return it all. And my dad used to call it bulimic shopping, which I, <laughs> I was like, that's exactly what it is. For me, it's working
0: in White Houses. <laughs>
2: Oh, tell me more, please.
0: That's like the addiction, the addiction would be, you know, cause that is all consuming and mm. like, you can't possibly take care of anything else in your life or worry about any sort of personal development or any kind of growth in your life. Can't possibly because uh, you're so consumed with work and no one can tell you that your priorities are wrong because what could be more important than working for a president and whatever you're doing, you're doing on behalf of the president. And therefore, you know, you can be blind to everything else in your life and not have to worry about anything. It's like all consuming. <sighs> I went in the Clinton White House and that was, you know, very young in my 20s. And so got very consumed by it and then pretty destructive on the back end. Right. Coming Mm -hmm. out of that, it's really hard adjustment because then you are stuck staring at yourself again. And then when I went back for the Obama years, I was much more grounded.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: You know, I was like careful to not let it consume me. Um, And found that I was able to keep that, you know, spiritual distance. Mm -hmm. Um, But that, you know, sometimes the big things you do in your life that are looked at others as achievements or accomplishments really is a way to distract yourself from like the stuff you should really be worrying about.
2: Oh, that's so interesting. How work can just become a hiding place. And when you have the most important job. I mean, when you were saying that, I was thinking about this quote I read a long time ago that said like the best sign of impending nervous breakdown is the delusion that your job is important. Totally. Like when you look at things from 360, it's like, wait, maybe anytime we consider ourselves super, super important is when we're about to just
0: crash. Right. And I also find that, you know, when I feel this real feelings of frustration as you're describing, where you just like hate everything in your life, I can tell I'm on the verge of some sort of good realization though. Like mm. I've learned to recognize that. Like I don't, when I'm super crabby and like rah, mm-hmm. what's normally coming. And if I like have the patience to let it rise, something that will, you know, something that will be illuminating for me. Mm-hmm. And now time for a quick break. We'll be right back with author and activist Glennon Doyle on just something about her. We're back to Just Something About Her with Lennon Doyle. We were just talking about how it's so important to quit every day in order to replenish yourself and to get through the next day. But how much of this did you learn, sort of, a, you know, absorb and learn during the pandemic, particularly about getting through the day? Because it's like, we have no distractions now. We are just stuck staring at ourselves and our family. Like the notion of quitting. I mean, I have never felt the need to quit more than when I'm stuck in my house all day, as opposed to like, you know, running around the world on a presidential campaign or something like that. So what about within the pandemic? Is that, is that sort of developed?
2: Well, I think it's a really interesting parallel. I mean, I really do think that what we're talking about is this human addiction to like keeping ourselves shaken up. You know, in Untamed, I wrote about this snow globe that I had as a little kid and I loved it, but I hated it. It was so pretty because you could shake up the snow and it was all sparkly yeah. and beautiful. But then I hated it because it had this like really scary red dragon at the center of it that I thought was terrifying. So I would just shaken up all the time. Right. Just walk in my room, right, work right over and shake it up so the dragon wouldn't be sitting there. And that's how I think about myself, all of us, right? Like we just are constantly keeping ourselves shaken up with work, with the food, with the sex, with the booze, with the scrolling, with the shopping, with the snark, right. with the apathy, with all the <laughs> busyness. Right, shopping cart on, on lunch. Right, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. So like, yeah. like, all that stuff is, is keeping ourselves shaken up so we don't have to see the dragons. Yes. Because what yes. you're saying is... When you feel all of that discontent coming up, that crankiness mm-hmm. that comes along with like, wait, I'm working too hard. I'm blah, blah, blah. When you allow yourself to feel that and you don't plow through it, you know something good is coming and that's because you're allowing yourself to look at the dragon, right? There's no slaying them without looking at them, right? And I think that is one of the hopes that I have during COVID because it feels to me like a forced collective settling of the snow right.
0: It is, yes.
2: We are finally looking at the dragons dead on, right? Like, I have so many friends who now are like, you know what, maybe those eight glasses of wine a night aren't like my best life. (laughs) Like, maybe, you know, just like maybe I am doing too much freaking work at home and maybe everything is falling on me and always has been falling on me and maybe my husband's not stepping up. Before COVID, it was so easy to ignore all the cracks in our lives and our relationships. It's much harder to ignore the dragons of our relationships yeah. when they're sitting next to us for 6 months on the couch, right? And when I think about <laughs> right, our communities and our nation and like how covid has forced us to look at the dragons that have always been there. Yeah. All of the brokenness of our institutions, all of the
0: all of the brokenness of like how we treat women's work, how it's invisible, how it's not remunerated you know women are the most essential workers but they're also paid the less like all of this is like revealed as so broken every system every power system is broken all of that what i worry is i want to make sure that women don't just become discouraged but pissed
2: mm-hmm. and to do
0: something about it
2: i think you we see some of that i mean when you think about the racial reckoning that we're i think yep. just beginning to embark upon right Sure. When that really started to come to consciousness was the murder of George Floyd. When you look back on that and you think, wait, what was different about this? Nothing. We've been knowing this for a very long time. Yeah, police brutality is not new. Yeah, what was different is that we looked at the drag. We didn't have anywhere to go. We were all in our homes. We had no distractions. We we all had to stare at it without looking it away. We had to feel it. We were in the middle of COVID. We couldn't just move on real quick. Like right. That was looking at the dragon at the center of our nation, which will always forevermore be institutional racism, right? Institutional right. misogyny. Yes. All of it. Yes. And and we see the energy. I mean, you say when we, when we allow ourselves to feel all of that, something good's coming. That's what we say. Yeah. I describe it as like first the pain, then the rising. Like right. we saw that with the uprising after yeah. the looking, after the sitting with it. Right, there is an energy that comes inevitably in this kind of rhythm, and so look, I do believe that women will band together. There will be an equal and opposite reaction to what we're finally acknowledging as a nation in terms of women's work, and not even how it's undervalued, but not valued at all. I just think it's going to take a minute because we're still freaking trying to survive and like trying to keep food on the table and trying to like parent and trying to mother and all that shit. Like we're just trying to keep the world together right now. Yeah. But in a minute, in a minute, Jennifer, I can feel it. It's just (laughs) going to be an uprising.
0: You know, there's like a zeitgeist of women kind of coming to the same sort of realization. I mean, in writing Untamed during years where Donald Trump was president of the United States, do you think that that unleashed something in you too and how you looked at the world?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think I've been pissed off since I was born. You know, I became bulimic when I was 10 years old. And whenever people are like, how does that happen? Like, how do young girls get eating disorders? I'm like, are you fucking serious? Like, (laughs) really? Yeah. I mean, Look look at what we share with young girls. Yeah, exactly. Really? Like, maybe because every message that little girls get from the time they're born is that their duty is to be pretty and how you be pretty is you be small. Like, maybe that's it. It could be. I don't know. Like, maybe we're just paying attention. Right? Maybe we're just following directions. And yeah. so I think the messages in Untamed have sort of been on the tip of my tongue for since I was 10 and trying to say, wait a minute. Yeah, right. maybe it's me, but maybe it's you, world. <laughs> you know, like every therapist <laughs> I've had, they're like, well, you're anxious, you're depressed. I'm like, okay, maybe, or maybe you're just not paying attention. <laughs> like that's yeah. how I generally feel. So I have been pissed and I really don't think anything gets done if it doesn't start with a bunch of pissed off women. So I love that. And I claim that it propels me towards the change that I want to be a part of in the world. So I believe in the power of righteous anger completely. You know, I think it was such an interesting and perfect decision to have Amanda Gorman read her work at the inauguration. Mm -hmm. I, love her beyond belief, but there was something about that choice of seeing that young Black woman stand in front of the country and express her commitment to hope. Mm -hmm. That felt so, in the most beautiful way, it was like saying, listen, all of you 45-year-old women who are considering the luxury of being jaded and hopeless, get off your asses. Right? Like if I, a 22-year-old black woman can stand up here and proclaim hope and work and that we are just beginning, the rest of you better get your butts in line. Right? That is the message that I heard from her loud and clear. And so I don't know. I I just, I haven't stopped thinking about that since that day. I think about it every morning, all of the time, like Amanda Gorman's proclamation that we will, we have just begun. And I'm so sorry if you're tired, drink some more coffee. I had that, you know, was at the inauguration thinking, you know, I was so
0: relieved to see the Obamas and the Bushes and like everybody come back. And it felt like you were seeing like your favorite characters from your favorite sitcom you hadn't seen in a while. And the Friends Reunion. Yeah, it was a little jarring because you're like, wasn't sure I could trust it, right? I was Mm -hmm. like, okay, democracy won out this time, but it feels very fragile. Mm -hmm. And we've been given a second chance and we are damn lucky that we've been given a second chance to make democracy work. But this is a very tenuous thing. And then she spoke and when she said, we are not broken, we're just not finished yet. Mm. I was like, whew, okay you are the future. And you, as you said, like you were a young black woman and after all America has shown you in your short life, you can stand on the inaugural podium of the United States Capitol in front of the entire country and assert that and call us to action in that way. Then like, I feel optimistic, you know, as exhausted as I am and so done with the pandemic and, you know, sort of chastened by all the challenges in front of us, right? Like, if we can rally that sort of attitude.
2: Yeah. And the Black women who keep saving us over and over again and have to have her stand up and say, you know, I don't know. I just, you know, when the polls came out about how white women voted again. I know, right? According to a CNN poll, 55% of white women voted for Trump. That was just so Uh, unbelievably depressing you know? And I did have moments where I was like, fuck them. Just like, we'll just follow the lead of like the organizers in Georgia. We will continue to fight voter suppression. We will get young, black, brown, gay. We'll get all of the way that America's going to the polls and we will just let those dinosaurs die out. (laughs) That was literally my attitude. And then here comes Amanda Gorman. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so funny that I was indulging that sort of attitude for so long. Like, Jesus, like that is your responsibility. You will get your butt back in the ring. Glennon Doyle, you will keep working. it. <laughs> right. right,
0: yeah. Well, that is a motivating place to take a quick break here and we'll be right back with Glennon Doyle on Just Something About Her. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with our guest, Glennon Doyle, who is not only a New York Times bestselling author, but also the founder of an organization called Together Rising. The group organizes these events called Love Flash Mobs, which are time-limited fundraisers where people donate small amounts for individuals, families, or causes in need at particular moments. Um, Glennon, this is a community you've built over the past decade. Tell us how you formed that community and what it's doing now.
2: I think every word that I write or speak is really about Together Rising, right? It's like you discover this little talent you have and you're like, thank God I have something. Like I can write (laughs) words. This is great. And then you start to show up and use your little talent and you think that's the thing. Uh And then you figure out that the universe always just uses your little talent to get you into the service lane, right? Like that's just the hook.
0: Oh, yeah, your talent is a way to get you to do service. It's not yeah. about your
2: talent. No, no, that's the thing, uh-huh. right? Okay. Like really, I am a bridge, right? Between like, I, oh, oh, I, I'm good right. at writing. I'm good at writing. That's my little thing. So I can listen to this story and then I can tell it in a way that bridges this person to these people, right? And so I'm, my real mm-hmm. job right. is the idea that there's nothing more revolutionary we can do that introduce people to each other, the end, Right. So, I began to tell stories of brokenness, really, in communities, in systems, Mm -hmm. in families, in lives. And the community that was reading me became activated around those stories. People started giving. And, you know, now, years later, I think we've raised $28 million. The average donation is still $25. So, this is all just completely grassroots. So good. Last year, we became the leading American. Uh, organization Reuniting Families at the Border. We just exist to meet marginalized women and kids where they are and get them what they need. And we trust women. And, you know, one of the things that I learned pretty early on, because we started just as like first responders to women and children in their families, like keeping the lights on, keeping the groceries on the table. And and my sister and I, because my sister and I run it together. Mm Mm-hmm. We were doing all this, you know, fix and fix and serve and service, but like there was no time to stop. And every time we'd stop, we'd just be like, wait, what? This returning question would be like, why is there so much freaking suffering? Like, why are these people who are doing all of the things they were told to do for the freaking American dream? Like, why are these people suffering so much? Why can't they put food on the table? And then one day I read this quote by Desmond Tutu and it said, you can only pull people out of the river for so long until you look up river to find out who's pushing them in. So that day, something about that simple quote changed everything for me. And I figured out, oh, I see. Wherever there's great suffering, there's always great profit, right? Mm -hmm. Always. And the thing is, if you're a philanthropist, which means you're just constantly pulling people out of the river, it's dangerous because you can actually become complicit with power. It's like… It works out great for them. They're over there pushing people in the river and you're just down river pulling them out. Don't, Don't worry, I got it, I got it, I got it. It's just doing like it. a little, a little right. cycle. That's right. So Together Rising is just the amazing organization that will always be pulling people out of the river, right? Because that's so important for people who are already in there. But then I have to take that off and put on my activist right. hat and just mm-hmm. look up river and give living hell to the people pushing them in. And so I think it's just very clearly an and both that I have to be committed to each day.
0: Another like big point of inspiration from you cuz you really do inspire and empower women so much. Mm. I'm just glad to know that you know when to quit and you like give yourself a break and Oh
2: girl. Don't um, worry. I was
0: really glad to read you had 181 unread text messages recently cuz I currently have 484. <laughs>
2: Good job. Texts are not the boss of us. When did this thing start? Where anybody could not. just tag us? Just you're it. You owe me something. No. If I think <laughs> of you, I'll text you. But just because you thought of me doesn't mean I'm stopping my day to text you back. No. Yeah, I was like, wow,
0: gun in She just doesn't like. She has a bunch of texts. has not even read them. Then I was you. like, oh, I was like, wow,
2: I have four hundred. <laughs> but thank you so much. No, it's been delightful. You. Thank you all so much. Oh, wait. So you're going to talk me through this, right? I'm going to name it Glennon and Jen. Nobody say anything yet. Don't jinx it. Some sort of miracle. It's saying one minute left. Abby's not going to believe this if I pull this off. It's saying finished uploading. Do you see it? Yes. You guys, wow. come on. It's I deserved my quitting. I, just, I earned my quitting today. I think I'm going to watch the Britney Spears documentary on Hulu. I need to know if we need to save Britney, you know? I mean, so I'm going, going, going to do some very serious feminist work. That's okay. <laughs> Bye. Everybody. Thank bye. Everybody. bye. Thank, thank yeah. you.
0: Bye. Sarah, are you there? Yep. I don't know where to start. I'm dying to hear what you got out of that.
1: So I just thought it was so I I had read this in her book about facing your dragons and how she was talking about the snow globe that she avoided as a child and how like the pandemic has allowed us to face our own dragons, both personally and institutionally as a country. Um, Obviously, what she talked about with her racial reckoning, as we're calling it from the summer and addressing the fact that, you know, Essential workers aren't taken care of in our society as much as they should be. And just all of these things. But also personally, I think as we're all looking forward towards the pandemic potentially ending and thinking about vaccines and reentering society, what we want to take with us. And, and we're really like staring that head on, what we want to keep, what we want to let go of, what we've learned. And I'm really feeling that lately.
0: I mean, you were the one who pointed this out to me. I had forgotten about it from her book that she says she's got a post it note on her mirror that says, Feel it all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes we try to protect ourselves from feelings of anxiety or, you know, shield ourselves from a feeling of disappointment or, or, or what have you. And really, like life is about feeling it all. And if you try to box yourselves out of um, emotion, look away from the dragon, you're not really experiencing life and the dragon's always going to catch up with you. So feel it all.
1: Wherever you go, you're always there. That's the one thing she would change about the human condition, she said. Right, <laughs> but we're not going true.
0: to. We're not going to. Yep. You know, when she talks about, you know, like it doesn't even matter how, how many weeks you're on the New York Times bestseller list. Right. You know, success only gets you so far. It can be sort of disappointing because you thought that if you had your dream come true, then everything would be perfect. But it's not, you know, the, her take on that is... Therefore, you don't have to continue to push yourself because in the end, the person you're going to have to be with is yourself. And we Mm -hmm. have to be as comfortable, you know, with the work that you're doing, the creative work that you're doing, but you don't have to hold it up to some kind of arbitrary measure of success. And then the, just the quitting stuff is so, just so, so, so liberating. And I feel just in the last few days, since I read her say that I've, able to live with like a little more enjoyment about soaking up the moment like we're in life. You know, I feel like if I were God, I would be annoyed with the human race because (laughs) it's rare that the humans take time to just appreciate, wow, the world is literally a beautiful place. It's snowing outside right now. And that's a spectacular thing. And I should appreciate that. But We need to soak up more of life and not just always be producing and achieving. And that's that's the best lesson I'm taking from the conversation we had.
1: There you go. It's a good place to end.
0: I'm so excited to get this out in the world. I think people will love it. Me too. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Glennon Doyle for being on the show. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.